Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is the podcast all about slow living in a fast-paced world. My name is Brooke McCallery. Ben McCallery is my name. And this is episode 259. So this episode, it marks the end of the American book tour. Yeah, the US book tour. So this episode was recorded in Minneapolis, in Minnesota. And you had a guest of the show who's been on before a couple of times, and it's another live event. Yes, so this is the final live event. Uh, I sit down with Joel Zaslowski, who you would know from, um, I'm sure, two episodes of the show. Uh, At least two episodes, yeah. yeah. So Joel has been a friend, probably one of the first sort of online friends in the simple living sphere. So I've known him for a number of years, and he's always been someone who was willing to help out and connect and he was one of the first people to put his hand up to do an event or help in any way possible on this tour uh, and it was really nice that I was able to finish the tour with him. Yeah. So we sat down to have a conversation at Modern Well which is a wellness collective in Minneapolis and there were a few familiar faces in the crowd. It was really wonderful to have people from the podcast community turn up uh, also, a lot of people that were new to the whole slow mm-hmm. living, um, slow living movement. But it it was just a really lovely way to round out the US, uh, the US book tour. Joel is a champion of connection, isn't he? That it's exactly what he is. Yeah. yeah, he. I think he really. That's one of his gifts. He puts people in touch with others and and seems to enjoy watching those relationships blossom. So it's another live recording. So it's going to be. Uh, similar to last week, but every event is a little bit different. But you might hear a little bit of double up during this. Recording. Yeah, again, look, yeah. it's, as I said, there's people who are new to the whole yep. idea of slow. There's people who have heard it before. So it's my job to try and keep it fresh and interesting. But while at the same time introducing slow and my story and, and why I wrote the book exactly. uh, to a different audience. So this is different in itself, though, because Joel is interviewing me. Yeah. Whereas some of the other in conversations with episodes I've done have been just a conversation. You know, the one with Jess Davis, the one with Tish Oxenrider, that was, that was again, a different format. So, yeah. I, I mean, I hope you enjoy it because I know I enjoyed it. I think people enjoy it. I, yeah, I think, yeah, I think so. Okay, so before we get into the episode, Canada events. I know we've heard a lot of people and they're very keen to come. We're going to be in Winnipeg on the 21st of October. We are, Yes. So that is at uh, McNally Robinson Books in Winnipeg at 3 p.m. on Sunday, the 21st of October. So we'll have a talk, we'll have Q&A, we'll have signings, and we'll get to, to hang out. Uh, and there's also dates yet to be confirmed, but if you follow along on Instagram, either at Slow Home Pod or at Brooke McCallery on Instagram uh, or Facebook, you will also be able to see when those dates are announced or just head to slowyourhome.com slash events. Vancouver's the first event. Yeah, Vancouver will be mid-October. Yep. And then we've got uh, Winnipeg, Winnipeg. And then we're going to finish up in Calgary. Again, like I said last week, there may be a couple more added in, but I'm just, I just can't, I'm not sure yet. Yeah. Uh, we're trying our absolute best to do as many as possible. Uh, but finishing up in Calgary, I think on the 30th of October. But the good news is we are bookending our, the tour in Canada. We so are, yeah. Come on out if you're in the Great White North. Actually, and please, please come on out. Yeah. That's what one thing I'm going to ask. I, I don't do asking <laughs> well, but if you're in those cities when the events are on and you listen to the podcast, you support, you know, the whole slow idea, come on out because uh, it helps me to, to show booksellers that there is an interest in this topic and in this book and it helps booksellers get people in the door. And like I said last week, independent booksellers are up against it, Yeah, you know, in the age of Amazon. So if you can at all possibly get out, do that. And if yep. you can't get out, call the bookstore and, and order a copy of the book, call your local library and ask them to stock it. You know, these are the things that, that really do matter for me as an author and getting the book out there. If, you know, even if you don't have the money to buy the book yourself, at least ask your library to, to stock it or get an extra copy in. Exactly. So as always, uh, show notes for this week's episode, you can head to slowyourhome.com slash 259. We links to everything that you need to know from there. And I really hope you enjoy this, this chat. Yeah. Over to you, Joel. 
clapping. Okay, well, most of you don't know who I am, and that's okay. Uh, my name is Joel Zislowski, and we are here to celebrate a book, slow, a movement, slow living, and the rad fact that Brooke McCollery, who you should know, or hopefully do know, is here with us in the Twin Cities area. Uh, I live in Edina, Minnesota. I grew up in St. Paul, so I'm kind of a, a local and co-hosting a little of this action. And Brooke and I are really grateful and excited mm -hmm. that you decided to say yes to a couple of hours with us, to a couple of hours to discuss. There's lots of different synonyms for slow. You might think about it as simple living or minimalism or essentialism, a lot of different things. Brooke has a specific style, which we're gonna talk about and get into in a bit of depth. And we will have a period of time. We're gonna have a lovely chat, Brooke and I here. We're good friends and talk about some of the themes and some of the questions that are probably on your mind, which are also on my mind as well. And then we'll also have a good opportunity to have some questions. We will, yeah. Um, so that's the plan. We're recording this for the podcast, which is very exciting. So if you have questions, um, feel free to ask them. But if you don't want them included in the podcast, just come and let me know afterwards and we will remove them. That is completely fine. Uh, and I just want to thank Joel for coming out. The reason I have partnered with people like Joel at some of these events on the book tour is because when I first started exploring slow living, I would look around the world and my friends and my family and feel like I was the only one who was struggling with the pace of life. And I felt lonely and I felt like I was a bit strange, a bit of a weirdo because I wanted to slow down. And then I started to meet people like Joel, who I met online six years ago maybe, um, and realized that I am not alone. I may be a weirdo, but I am not a weirdo for that reason. <laughs> So, I mean, to be able to sit down and have a conversation with like-minded people is wonderful. And the fact that you're here and engaged with this idea of slow living when it is so countercultural fills me with great joy. So, thank you. Let's... But less countercultural now because, yeah, right. six, seven years ago, right. I live in a major metropolitan area and Brooke lived just outside of one and we're thinking, well, where are our people? And so we had to talk across continents and I would send a note to Brooke saying, hey, Brooke, I'm Joel. Uh, you seem cool. Should we get on Skype at some point in time and talk? Because there aren't a lot of people around here who yeah. are going in similar directions or are thinking in similar ways. Now, looking around here, we have about 25 people and there's a lot more folks to have wonderful conversations with and a lot more people who either get it or want to really get into slow. Right. Let's start there. Okay. When it comes to slow, mm. take us back in time a little bit, Brooke, when you either as you or maybe a little bit before, can you talk about a little bit of what your life looked and felt like before you decided, I think I need to slow this down a little bit? Right. I was forced to slow down, really, because my life was the exact opposite of slow. Uh, I was not mindful. Uh, I was not intentional. And I was certainly not slow. I was running a jewelry business, which I ran from a garage studio, like a back, backyard studio in our house. We had maybe two years previously moved from the Blue Mountains, uh, from the city of Sydney to the Blue Mountains, trying to find a more balanced life. But with that move meant my husband was commuting three and a half hours a day um, in his same job. And he would get up at five, leave at eight, um, get up at 5 a.m., get home at eight and not see our children awake all week. Um, I had a baby girl uh, and I was pregnant with our second and I was constantly striving to be successful. But I had no idea what success actually meant to me as a, an individual. I was just trying to do all the things that I thought would make me look successful. You know, so we focused on renovating our house and buying a new car and going on fancy holidays and owning a lot of stuff. And I would convince myself that the next thing that I was aiming for would be the thing that would make me happy and then I could stop. But of course, I'd get to that thing and realize that there was another thing hiding behind it. And then, well, of course, obviously, once I get to that thing, then I'll be happy. And it was this cycle of consumption and striving and exhaustion and, and overwhelm and overcommitment. Uh, and when our second baby was born, I was diagnosed with severe postnatal depression. Uh, my mental health had been taking a decline for many years, I think, but it wasn't until I found myself staring at my reflection in the mirror one day when he was about six weeks old, just saying out loud over and over again, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, that I realized that like, I wasn't just tired. <laughs> there was something else at play there. And I called my husband and got the help that I needed, thankfully, pretty quickly. 
and that help included um, taking antidepressants for a number of years, but also seeing a psychiatrist. And my psychiatrist was the one who put me into this, in touch with this idea of doing less. Because she'd listened to me complain about how busy I was and how I never got to enjoy anything in life. And one day she just asked me, well, have you ever considered doing less? And I said, no. <laughs> Is that an option? <laughs> and really, that was it, because I went home very offended at the suggestion of doing less because I thought she was saying I couldn't cope. But I Googled, how do I simplify my life? And I found minimalism. I found blogs about minimalism. And that was where I started. I started by decluttering. Was it Zen Habits? Was it was, yes. Leo Babata and yes. Zen Habits? Yeah. You went from there? Yeah. You folks, have you heard of Leo? And yeah. Wow. And then that led to, some of us here have probably experienced this too, where you get the initial thing and then the snowball happens. You get connected with this book or this podcast and all these other things. Yeah. As we start to go forward a little bit, you, I'm curious because you are influential on a number of people now, which is a wonderful place to be. And we all are in our own ways. But as you were starting to get into minimalism mm. and figure out what this looks like to you, how did that unfold? Yeah, it was interesting. I found this idea of minimalism and I found it was Leo specifically who wrote so beautifully about the freedom that came with it. And I thought, I want to be that. I want to be a minimalist. So, of course, I decided that if I was going to be a minimalist, I was going to be the best minimalist that ever existed. <laughs> <laughs> and I was going to do it very quickly. <laughs> and, and I thought that's what I needed to do because I'd read all of these blogs about people owning 100 items. And I thought that that's what I had to do in order to do that lifestyle well. And it took me a few years of trying things and fa feeling like I was failing at them to discover that it wasn't really about the amount of stuff that I owned at all. It was about how intentionally I was living. So for me, it was taking, decluttering was a tool and it was important, but it was only a tool. It wasn't actually the goal in the end. So I found myself then moving into other areas of research and reading and, you know, how do you live more intentionally? And for me, really, what I needed to figure out was what do I actually want in life? Because decluttering was not it. So I, um, I ended up writing my own eulogy when I was 31 as part of a writing exercise. And that was the moment that I realized that, that what I had been doing was really in service of creating that kind of life, the kind of life that I wanted to see at the end. Um, it wasn't about decluttering. Like my kids weren't going to stand uh, at my gravesite and talk about how well I decluttered. <laughs> at least I hope they don't. <laughs> what, was in, what was in the eulogy? Um, what were so, some of the themes of it? Well, my eulogy, I can't, um, I don't think I'll get it completely word for word, but I can say, I can give you, an overhead view. Why? Of it. You've boiled it down to. Right, it's four okay. sentences. Yeah. That was the writing exercise. Do it in three or four sentences. Uh, and it's quick to laugh, creative, compassionate, with the wicked sense of humor. Mum was never without uh, a plan on the horizon. She made a, a seriously good old fashioned. <laughs> uh, and she was never without you know, something new, some kind of spontaneous plan on the horizon. And then it was, mum, thank you for our roots. And thank you even more for our wings. Um, and I completely butchered that. But that was the essence. It was my kids standing up in front of a room full of people, as, and they're adults, hopefully, looking back on the kind of life that I had led and the impact that it had had on them um, and on our community and on our family. And in that moment, I realized that I hadn't been living that kind of life. That was the question that came hot on the heels of having written my own eulogy at 31. Am I living that life right now? Would my kids say that about me if I continued to live this way for 60 years? And the answer was no. I mean, the funny thing is, I didn't even drink old fashions. <laughs> I don't know why that made it into the eulogy, but <laughs> it's just what I imagined. <laughs> and it was then that I realised if I wanted to live a life that I could look back on and feel like I'd had a positive impact on the world, um, I'd need to change the way that I lived my days because the way we live our days, the way we live our minutes is the way we live our lives. And I, am, I, I hadn't put that information together in my, in my brain before I was 31 years old. I'd never really realised that what I did with my moments was what I did with my days, what I did with my life. And that was when I started to, to shift away from focusing on minimalism in and of itself to focusing on how do I live a more values, like a life more aligned to my values. And yeah, the changes that came after that were, were vastly different. They had very little to do with stuff at all. 
did those ideas just come, they were already there, and then you said, okay, here's what I'm gonna do, first, second, third, or did you have to have conversations with friends and family or seek out other people who had been there, done that before you started down the seriously intentional path? It's a combination of all of those things, actually. I'm not, I'm not a list maker, like I'm not a process person, I'm a more intuitive person, so I'll find things that ring true. And I read a lot, like I read a, a huge number of blogs and books about this whole area of life, you know, simplifying, slowing down, getting intentional, and found what felt like the areas that I needed to, to change. So it was also my psychiatrist who put me in touch with the idea of mindfulness. And up until that point, I had assumed that mindfulness was a buzzword that meant very little and that made a handful of people a lot of money by selling them books, right? And I just thought that it was this big concept that maybe I wasn't quite smart enough to understand. Like, so what, you just pay attention to things? But it wasn't until I realized that that's actually exactly what mindfulness is and living a mindful life is not necessarily about meditation. It's not necessarily about anything in particular other than learning how to pay attention. And that's what I started to do. And the changes that came from that, just from being more mindful, affected the way I parented, the kind of partner that I was, the conversations that I was having, the way I was turning up for people in those conversations, the way that I, um, I treated technology, which I realized after a number of years probably that technology was having a huge impact on my ability to live slowly as well. And I think the more people I talk to, the more I realize that that is very common. I think that our technology, our phones living in our pockets, is a huge obstacle to our ability to just be in the moment, to be without distraction. I have a phone in my pocket right now. Right. Um, and <laughs> it's I'm not, not legal. It's, it's still legal, which is wonderful. It's, so here's, here's the tension that a lot of people feel, myself right. included, which is, so we have this magical portal to an entire world of awesomeness at mm -hmm. all times. And we can take it out and we can have just a little bit or we can have a lot of it depending on whether we're waiting in line at the grocery store or whether we finally, finally got a couple of hours to ourselves right. and we just want to do something. And there's so many glowing screens. I don't just think about it as a phone. I think about laptops and TVs and there's so many. I just break it down into this overarching category of a glowing screen. And not all glowing screens are the same. Mm -hmm. But when we think about technology and what we can do through these magical portals that bring the world to us or that allow us to go out, what are some of the first steps that you took to not necessarily distance yourself and saying, that's not me, I don't want that, but to have a slower, more healthy relationship with all of the tech that's everywhere around us. Right, because I, I mean, I think that there is a tendency at the moment to demonize tech, and I think that that's a mistake because it's not going to go anywhere. It's how a lot of us connect. It's why you and I are connected. It's why I'm sitting here right now. Um, it's how I stay in touch with my family. I've been traveling for, you know, nine months. My parents are back in Australia. So tech has its uses, um, but I think that it's when we are uh, allowing ourselves to live with it mindlessly that it starts to be a problem. Um, it, I see technology as a tool to be used and used well and used mindfully and then put down and we go do something else. I think when it starts to seep into all of those cracks in time, those times we're standing in line, the times where we've got five minutes to ourselves and first thing we do is pick up our phone and, and start scrolling, and I'm, I'm as guilty of it as anyone, that's where we lose that sense of spaciousness in our days because if we're filling up every single minute in our days and we don't ever give ourselves two minutes to sit in the car after we've dropped the kids at school and just go and just be, that adds up to a life that feels like we have no margin at all. So for me, it's about creating boundaries around technology and they are going to look different for everybody depending on work, depending on family situations. Um, but we create a physical boundary in our house so we have screen-free bedrooms. Everyone in our family has a screen-free bedroom. The kids always have, but Ben and I did an experiment about two years ago where we um, removed every screen from our bedroom, including our phones, which we had used as an alarm clock up until that point. And the impact of going screen-free in the bedroom for 30 days was phenomenal. On our sleep, um, on our relationship, like we would just sit in bed and actually talk. I would read books again, and I would wake up in the morning to my alarm, which was in another room, so I'd have to get up and get out, um, and I'd turn my alarm off and I'd put my phone down and I wouldn't dive headfirst into my emails or into Instagram or into 
the news of the day before I'd even got out of bed. And that alone made a massive difference to my mental health. So creating just a physical boundary around our technology has helped us and the inputs that we have and the inputs that I allow into my head, like the social media accounts that I, I own and the ones that I follow, the news websites that I do and don't go to, all of these things are now much more intentional because I took time to remove myself from that mindless scrolling first thing in the morning. Uh, but we also do have a screen-free period over the weekends, so usually from... 12 p.m. Saturday to 12 p.m. Sunday is a screen-free time, with the exception of a movie, maybe. And that, again, proved to me how often I would go to pick up my phone when I was bored, when I was uncomfortable, when I had two minutes to myself, the first thing I would do would be pick, pick up my phone, ostensibly to look at something, maybe the time, but I would very quickly find myself flicking through Facebook or Instagram. And that 24-hour period every week is a really great reminder to be mindful of how I use my technology. And I think they're really great places to start. Of course, it depends, again, on people's circumstances, right. but there's, there's going to be a way that you can create a boundary, perhaps around your email when you do and don't check it, or when you turn your phone on to do not disturb, or whatever it may be, and just use that as an opportunity to start to reevaluate how often you reach for that to fill those little gaps. Yeah. I have a... I guess we're recording, so but right. I can still say this. Yes. Brooke has me trained so well when it comes to email. When I send her an email, I know there's a really good chance that I won't hear back from her for two or three weeks. Yeah. And you know what? I actually like that. Over years, I have been conditioned through Brooke and through the very intentional boundaries that she's created and communicated very clearly that if I email her, don't expect something back. And I, there are a lot of other people who, when I send them an email, I get kind of antsy. It's a, it's a day, two days have gone by, and where's my reply? <laughs> and with Brooke, it's, it's refreshing. Like when you have someone who has created this kind of lifestyle and uh, uh, all these different facets, I really appreciate that. So I, I have to be much more mindful and anticipatory, like, okay, I've got this two or three week lead time. <laughs> when do I start and what do I ask for? And when is something gonna come back? I, I've really come to this enjoy just that. In, this I'm is a one terrible of my friend. <laughs> no, no, you're a great friend, and I've come to really appreciate that about you. Thank let's, you. Let's talk about the intersection of something that you were talking about before. Right. So, what slow looks like and work. Right. And we can talk about kids and travel. There's so many different facets of which we won't be able to talk about most of them today. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to work, I know a lot of the work that you do is online. Yeah. And requires you to have at least potentially distractions from technology, where have you been able to carve out this realm of slow around the kind of work that you do? And perhaps more importantly, as we think about all the folks who are here, whether they do a lot of work online or whether they're more in the real world, but mm -hmm. still tempted by what's happening and all the distraction that's around us, just the conversation that people are having. Did you see the thing today? Did you see the thing on YouTube? Right. How does that work for you? Um, so I, I use some tools, um, some digital tools to lock down my work space. So when I'm writing, um, I have this silly little app on my phone uh, that is called Forest. And it essentially grows a tree, <laughs> a fake digital tree inside the app when you have opted to, to kind of shut everything down. And if you pick your phone up in the time within which, so I think I set it for 25 minutes at a time. And if I pick my phone up within 25 minutes, the tree will die. So <laughs> it's just a really sweet way of reminding myself what I'm doing and that past Brooke knew that I needed to focus. And even though present Brooke is trying to procrastinate, uh, you know, I've got myself on lockdown. So that is a, just a really handy way, again, of re-evaluating how often I reach my phone when I'm working. And I'll often find myself working away fine until I hit a difficult thing. Like I have to write something difficult or I, I come to a thought that I'm not quite sold on. And that's when I'll pick up my phone to distract myself. And it's been amazing to realize how often I do that. So that is called Forest and that's a really handy app. But there's another one that locks down, it's called um, Freedom. And that locks down all apps on my phone and it locks down a list of websites that I know I go to to procrastinate. So news websites or Twitter, for example, um, Facebook, all those ones, like the usual suspects. So doing that means that I can 
sit there and answer all my emails that have been there for three weeks and, <laughs> and, and do that and not, not be distracted by anything else. And I find, again, it's just drawing my attention every time that I, I feel that pull to, yeah. to move away has been really helpful. Uh, but also I have embraced, because I'm a, a, write, a writer, that's a big part of what I do, I write by hand in a book what? with pencil. Yeah. Analog? Uh-huh. Oh, do people still do that? <laughs> Apparently, we've got note takers here. That's wonderful. Right. Yeah. I think it's great. Yeah. I find that my brain works differently when yeah. I am writing longhand, piece of paper and pencil, as when I'm typing. And we've done a little bit of research on it, and it seems that when you're typing, you're using both sides of your brain. And depending on the task at hand, that can cross wires, but it can create a lot of stimulus in your brain using both sides um, of the brain at the same time. And for some people, that can create like a brain fog. And that's how I feel. So even with writing this book, I sat down and I wrote most of it longhand before typing it out like I used to do old school. Like in school, I would write out my essays and then I would type them up. And that was a really nice way of, of creating, I think, and limiting distraction. So I think that um, for people who are like, well, none of that applies to me in my work. There are things that we can do. We can put our phones in a drawer for an hour at a time and do the work that we need to do. We can turn our emails off for an hour at a time. Or I know a number of people who will say that they've got a, an email footer that says, I answer emails from 9.30 a.m. to 11, and then again from 2.30 to 4. I will respond to you. And the key there is that they do respond in that, that period of time. So I think that we're sort of, we've been sold on this constant um, immediate responsiveness as a sign of our efficiency or our worth in the workplace. And again, depending on the work that you do, it may well be. But for many of us, there is a way that we can create boundaries. Um, and the irony being more, that we'll be more efficient uh, if we set aside time to simply focus on emails and then set aside time to write the report and then set aside time for the, the, the meeting. Um, and I think that, again, this is something that I find frustrating, this whole idea of multitasking. We've been sold a dud of a myth. I really just find that multitasking takes our attention away from the ability to do one thing well and tells us that we're being efficient because we're trying to do five things but actually, you know, we, we're not doing any of them well. It's not possible to do more than one thing at a time. Our brains are just jumping very rapidly from task to task. I mean, if I try and cook dinner and play with my kids and answer an email at the same time, I will burn dinner. <laughs> I will not answer the email and my kids will know that I'm phoning it in. So it's also about shifting our mindset away from multitasking to single tasking, tilting into the one thing that we're doing in this moment, finishing it and then moving on. You know where it's really easy to do that? Outside. Right. In nature. Right. So, uh, and this is something that applies to any human that's ever existed and any human who will ever exist. So as we talk about outdoors and this concept of being in nature, I find that right now we're indoors and it's a lovely space. I mean, I, I love this. We don't have lots of wind to contend with and it's a hot day. So we're all quite comfortable right now. But there's the discomfort and the constant appeal to our senses when we're outside saying, pay attention to me. Right. I'm what's important right now, not the thing that I could be doing instead or what's going on in my pocket. I know you love your gardening, but you can't do that right now because mm -hmm. you've been traveling and you don't have a garden. But you have gone to remote places like the Yukon in yeah. Canada. What role has just the natural world had in creating this kind of container that's both forced you to and thrust you into this world of really paying attention, being mindful, and having that minute-to-minute, moment-to-moment slowness. Right. I think one of the first lessons that I ever had about mindfulness was outside. Um, and I, that's not a coincidence, I don't think. It was, uh, I write about it in the book, but essentially I had planted a garden before our second baby was born, and then it got completely neglected, which I don't think is uncommon. Uh, but one day I went out when I was hanging out the clothes and I noticed that this vine had been blooming and was sort of ready to burst into bloom. And every day I found myself really excited to get outside and see the change in this vine, to see the change in the flowers. And one day I, I went outside and there was flowers before, like where before there was just little buds. And that was mind-blowing to me that these things were happening around me all the time and I hadn't noticed before. 
and from there I started noticing other tiny little details and have taken that practice all through um, gardening. I love, like, I, like you said, I loved my garden, but also the time that we spend in nature. So I used to spend all my time indoors and very gradually started to spend more time going for bushwalks and, and hikes. And this year, while we don't have a house necessarily, um, we've been traveling for nine months. So the places we stay are all very different. We are constantly looking for ways to get outside. And I find that my mental health, my physical health, but my mental health improves enormously as within sort of 10 minutes of being outdoors. And I'll try to convince myself that it's not necessary until I get outside and I'm like, oh yeah, that really was necessary. I feel much better. Uh, and we did, again, um, Ben and I did an experiment we do these slow living experiments every two months, um, my husband and I, and we usually try and involve the kids. And in March, we committed to spending 60 minutes a day in nature. And it was honestly surprisingly powerful for me, the impact that it had on our family, my creativity, mental health again. And that really highlighted what I think is actually an essential part of life. We need to spend time outside, uh, not only through the lens of slowing down, but through the lens of connection, through the lens of grounding ourselves, centering ourselves in what's important. There'll be something there about whatever comes next for me will be grounded in, in time in nature, I think, because it's just become so essential. Yeah. Well, I'm really curious what questions everybody here has. We're gonna do maybe two or three more because I'm sorry, I just can't stop myself. You all have wonderful questions and we're gonna to get to them. I, so, you know, I am way into simple living and slow living, all about it. Mm -hmm. And yet, I still have doubts and reservations about per individually and also collectively, whether that's at the neighborhood, community, city, nation, internationally mm -hmm. level. What doubts or reservations do you have about the power of slow to bring about the change that you would like to see in the world? That's a really good question. Um... It's become increasingly apparent to me that half the reason we are struggling, and I mean, I include myself in this we, is because we have opted for a life of convenience. And that's a powerful thing. We've been sold time. We think we've been sold time. I paid attention to the ads that I've been, because we don't have commercial, we don't watch commercial TV at home, but when we've been traveling, the kids have been watching a bit of commercial TV, and every ad promises time. It's like, save time, buy this, pop into the store and buy, the, buy dinner on the way home. And I think that time has become this commodity. But what so many of us don't realize is that by having to pay for this time producing magical product, we have to work harder, um, which removes the option of spending that time anywhere else than at work anyway. And so I'm, I'm curious to see how willing we are to give up convenience for change. And it's, it's powerful, like I get it. I don't know, I'm, I'm curious about it. And there are things that have been happening, I think the shift away from single use plastic, for example, which has become really closely tied to slow living is something that's really positive in the right direction, I think, because people are starting to realize that we've been sold this idea of convenience, it's not actually convenient, and at what cost. So to see people picking that idea up and running with it is wonderful and really inspiring to me. But I think once an idea gets big enough, you'll start to get corporate forces who stand to lose quite a bit if people start picking up on, on their advertising message. Um, and I just, don't, I just don't know. I mean, I'm not gonna stop though. And for me, slow living, the thing that is so powerful about slow living is not necessarily the number of straws that we remove from the ocean, although that's like a fantastic byproduct of, of it. It is creating space in our lives to connect with people in a real way. Um, so by removing the busyness in life and like the busyness of constant scrolling, the busyness of feeling like we need to be resp super responsive to emails, the busyness of over committing our weekends, and never having time to just be, removing some of that gives us buffer in our life that is sorely lacking. I think we're all feeling like we're running at 110%. And when life then gets busier or something or more complicated, we have nowhere to expand. So by removing that kind of top 15 or 20%, we give ourselves a little space. And in that space, we're able to stop and really listen to our kids when they talk to us about their day 
or in that space, we have the time to call our parents and ask them how they are. Not because you need something or anything like that, it's just to connect. You have time to speak to your next door neighbor for five minutes and connect. And through that, that simple act of connection, we start to build stronger families. We start to build stronger friendships and communities. And over time, that's honestly where I think the, the power of slow living is. It is in creating communities of people who have time to care. Because I really feel like so much of what we're lacking at the moment is people having time to care. It's not that they don't want to. It's not that people are hardened. It's that they're so busy that they don't have the opportunity to sit down and really show people that they care. So I think that if it does nothing else, if it changes nothing else other than people's ability to connect and to, to share and to show how we value each other, I mean, a lot can come from that. Yeah. Where are those pockets of potential that you see that exist or that could exist when it comes to bringing people together around slow? Where in the world, or maybe even online, mm. if I want to go and I want to be among my people like we are today, where do you go when you want to connect but, Yeah. More? Part of it's online, and that's why I think that online can be a tool for very, very good. <laughs> like it's, it's not always a tool for distance and disconnect. But I do think that there is something powerful that happens when you get together in person with people. So when people ask me, where can I go? I want to find like-minded people, but I, I'm not related to any. I don't have, my friends aren't on the same path. Where do I go? <clears throat> find something in your community that you love. It might be like a gardening club. It could be a yoga class. It might be going to the local library and volunteering somewhere. But finding something, it does, you don't have to find your twin, like your sole twin out in the community. You just need to find people who are like-minded. So finding a group of people and choosing to spend time with them, regardless of what your initial thoughts might be, has, for me has opened up so many opportunities for relationships. So I joined a, a bush care group um, back in the Blue Mountains. And that was fantastic because I got to not only spend three hours uh, a month out in the bush, just clearing weeds and just doing something that felt physically useful, but I got to meet so many like-minded people who I would not have otherwise met mm -hmm. because I didn't think we had anything in common. But that, that, that's the beauty of it. You have so much more in common with people than you think. We just don't, we don't have time to, to explore that. So make time. Yeah. And I think connecting any way you can. I mean, starting something too. Well, exactly. For people who want to plant their flag in the ground and yep. say, I stand for this. Yeah. Anybody want to rally around this flag? It's kind of lonely and awkward at first, but we've known and we are people who have planted flags in the ground and say, we are against a certain number of things, but we are for so much more. Yeah. And for those who want to not be lectured at, but invited into a conversation about other possibilities and alternate ways, which I use that word alternate, like alter nature. But the real essence of what we're looking for is almost going back to what was the default, to what I feel is my birthright as a human, this natural way of living and being and thinking and doing. Uh, and a lot of us are rediscovering it in some really neat ways. You're an amazing example of that. And I'd like to hear other people's either comments about that or if you have some questions. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna take this mic off of me. Do you have anything else that you wanna add before we no, that was get into wonderful. some questions? Thank you. For those of you who wanna potentially end up on the Slow Home <laughs> Podcast, <laughs> and you want, well, of course, if you don't, that's fine. But if you just wanna ask a question to Brooke or ask a question to everyone else here because crowdsourcing the wisdom. There, every one of us yeah. here has a lot of gifts and talents and a lot of knowledge. So yes, Brooke is amazing and we'll ask her questions. But if you want to open it up to other people as well. I agree. You yeah. can do that too. Okay, anybody want, I'll, I'll bring this around and I'll just kind of hold it in front of your face in a, in a non-weird <laughs> way. Not too close, like right around here. Anyone want to, yeah? Go for it. So Brooke, uh, you and I have a lot of the same story uh, with uh, postpartum depression. Um, and I, I think a lot of us here would like to know, what do you do when you are in a situation that you can't control? Um, I think all of us are called to very hard things. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes they're just things you can't do to change it. I know in my situation, I have two kids under three years old. And um, it's actually really hard to just set aside five minutes to pray. 
Yeah. And um, sometimes I feel a little lost because I'm being told all of these things that would be good for my life, but then there's either baby crying or someone needing a diaper change or a snack or something, and it feels really overwhelming. Yeah. It is overwhelming. So first of all, where you're at right now is overwhelming. It's just intense. And you're not doing anything that's making that worse. Like you're, you're just not, that's just kids, little kids, even bigger kids, they're noisy and they're messy and they're demanding and they're not slow. So for me, it was a huge shift when I let go of what I thought slow should look like. Like I had this picture in my head of what it should look like, what all the other people writing about it were doing and that I was holding myself up to this make-believe ideal. Uh, when I let go of that, it helped immensely because I'm like, let's not worry about what I feel like it should look like. What do I need it to feel like? Can it feel like 30 seconds extra spent in the bathroom, taking three deep breaths, and most days that's exactly what it felt like. It was not, there was no meditation happening. There was no like long leisurely yoga classes or anything. I wish there was, but there wasn't. And that stuff didn't start to come until my kids were a bit older and we had shifted a lot, like my husband's work situation had changed um, and my mental health situation had changed. So I think letting go of your expectations, first of all, but also just um, committing to taking like that 30 seconds and those three deep breaths and, and understanding what you're doing by taking those three deep breaths is creating that little bit of buffer where you won't be so... I, I'm saying you, but I mean me. <laughs> I was so reactionary for those years when my kids were little, and it's because I had no space to expand. And what you're doing with those micro moments, like that 30 seconds, that 10 seconds of paying attention to how your little kid's, like your, your kid's hand fills in yours just for 10 seconds while you're walking, that fills you up in a way that um, even like a yoga class or meditation may not, because it brings you into the wonderful things about the moment that you're in. And it can feel really hard to come by the big moments when you're in the thick of it with kids your age. So I think sticking to some kind of commitment to find slowness in your day, but really reducing the scope, <laughs> like really bringing it way down. So when I started to declutter, for example, I thought I'd had to declutter an entire room at once or my two-car garage. Um, and that was a disaster because, of course, it's overwhelming. And I didn't have time to do that, but I thought that I should be doing that. So I beat myself up over it. And it wasn't until I realized that maybe I could declutter five pens from the junk drawer and that was it. That was the job of the day done that I realized it can be as small as I want. It can be ridiculously, embarrassingly small as a task and it can still help because those things add up over time. So if you can reduce the scope, reduce the shoulds, get rid of the shoulds and just stick to doing one thing every day. I'm honestly 30 seconds in the, like in the toilet <laughs> that was what I would do like I'm not even I'm not even using the toilet I'm just in here for 30 seconds and I'm, I'm, I move on yeah you're welcome hi I know you've touched um on this in your podcast but can you talk a little bit about how to engage your spouse or partner um who's not super gung-ho about soul living but isn't opposed to it but isn't hasn't jumped Totally yep. on board. Yeah, and that's basically Ben. You just described where Ben was at um, for a number of years. Initially, he thought that my kind of desire to declutter and to slow down was part of my recovery for depression. And he's like, it's a phase, it'll be fine. She'll be back to who she was soon. And then I think it took him a number of years to realize that I wasn't going to change back. And he didn't want me to because the benefits that I had been enjoying were so immense like my mental health was so much better and our family life was better and that was when he realized that he had been benefiting from my choice to slow down and simplify and that there were things that he could then do so like my advice is frustrating because it's not the fast route it's definitely the slow route but I always try and just lead by example I decided really early on not to declutter any of his stuff. I, in fact, I didn't touch it because I discovered that I wanted to blame him for all the clutter in our house. I wanted to blame my kids for all of the mess. And when I started to look after my own and deal with my own, I realized that so much of it was mine. <laughs> and that was not great for my ego, but it was really good because it gave me a lot to work with before I even had to worry about, about his stuff. And it was probably 12 months in, about half, halfway through the first year of simplifying, he asked me if I joined a cult. So 
that, that was when I knew that the changes had been noticed. But it was probably 12 months in that I came home one day and he'd started cleaning out his side of the wardrobe because he realised he had far more clothes than I did. But again, it wasn't until he, he started suffering panic attacks on the train on the way to work that he realised that not only was it something that I had, to, I had been going through and changing and benefiting from, but there was something very imbalanced with the way that he was living, that that was the impetus for him to start looking and searching. Um, and luckily, I was happy to talk to him about it. I wasn't like, told you so. <laughs> um, and, and, that, and that was it. So I think the other thing that has worked really well for us is to introduce Ben to ideas, like ideas of slow living, not from me. So I had been writing about it for a number of years. I think the podcast had even started at this point. And we watched a documentary series by Carl Honoré, who wrote In Praise of Slow. Um, he did a three-part series in Australia called Frantic Family Rescue. <clears throat> and he, he basically just helped three overwhelmed families to simplify their lives. And at the end of the documentary series, Ben looked at me and he's like, that guy's really onto something. <laughs> <laughs> Great, yeah, you're right, he is. And it was just hearing the message from a different person as well. So I think if there is a book or a podcast or something that you think might resonate with them on an issue that is their pain point, not your pain point, that can also be a really great place to start. But honestly, just like go and make the changes that you can and really enjoy those benefits because I think that that is probably the best motivation for someone to join you is to see you thriving with the changes that you're making. You're welcome. Hi. Okay. So aside from work and family, a lot of my schedule, my buffer, so to speak, is taken up with actual abundance, with things that I don't want to cut down on. Mm -hmm. um, particularly, I'm surrounded by some really amazing, beautiful people that I want to connect with. But then I find my schedule getting filled with coffee with this person and drinks with this person and walks with this person. And these are all people I want to mm -hmm. be with. They're not people I want to cut out of my life, I, I feel badly that I can't see more people. So I'm wondering if you have any advice for regulating that. That's a fantastic question. Um, and a few years ago, I wouldn't have related at all because I'm so introverted and I was so wrapped up in my own stuff going on in my head that I didn't want to spend time with anyone. But over the past few years, that has changed. And I can, I can, I can understand that. Uh, first of all, it's a, like a wonderful problem to have, to be surrounded by abundance in love and people and connection. Um, and also then to ask yourself, is spending that time with them um, stressing you out or is it the impact it's having on your schedule? Because I think they're two different things. So if you could, again, reduce the scope but stick to the schedule. So instead of saying, I love hanging out with this person, I'm going to do it twice a week, pull it back to once a week. But when you're there for that one time per week, be fully there. Don't allow yourself to become distracted. Don't allow yourself to be thinking about the next thing you've got to do or to have your phone out or, you know, I'm not suggesting you do any of that. But I find that when we really turn up and when we really engage with people in conversation, it fills us up in a way that two or three or four conversations with them where we're just skipping across the surface doesn't do. So I always try and really turn up for people. If we're having people over for dinner, we don't have any distractions. We're not watching the football at the same time. We're just there and we have the, like, the good juicy conversations and we feel, we feel filled up from each other so that when it might be a month before we get to hang out again, that doesn't feel like we're <clears throat> in deficit, you know? So I think if there's something that you can do to up that connection with people, yet reduce the amount of the, the number of times you feel like you need to do it, that might be a way of, of starting. Sorry, I'm just going to have a drink of water. <laughs> exactly. See, she can simplify much better than I can. <laughs> if you want the, the super extroverts version of how to intentionally systematize your relationships so that you can have literally hundreds of amazing people in your life from all over the world, like Brooke, we'll talk about that too. Joel's your man, right? <laughs> Okay, yeah. Um, I own a small retail shop up right. on the North Shore, and um, it's really, really high intensity in the summer and the fall. And I found that I'll give my employees like an, a much longer lunch break in the busy time, and mm -hmm. that helps a lot. But a lot of my employees will be like, oh, no, 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 I don't need it. It's okay. I can, you know, right. I can come back and like almost like, you know, like they want me to be happy that they're taking less, right. you know, and I'm, 
but I've explained to them that like it's actually better for the business too if you yeah. take a longer <laughs> lunch because you'll be more focused. Um, but just I didn't. Like, do you have any other suggestions for a small business owner? Because obviously, like, I can't afford like nap pods or anything. Of course, yeah. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> oh, that's a great question. It's so interesting to me that people still feel like busyness is the ultimate badge of honor. You know, it's like, oh well, I'll just rush off and I'll have ten minutes and I'll be back. It's fine. Don't worry. Whereas you already know that that is detrimental to them and the business on the whole. So I think just perhaps even making a policy, you know, I'm not sure if they ever have to be connected after hours or anything like that, but making a company policy that you, you're not expected to answer your phone in the off hours, except for, you know, perhaps this exception, if someone's on leave or whatever, and just putting it front and center that you value your time where you're disconnected from work and you understand and acknowledge and want your employees to value their time and tell them why, you know, what you enjoy doing to switch off, what you enjoy doing by disconnecting from work, how it fulfills you in completely different ways, and see if they're open to having a conversation about the things that they love to do, and, and seeing if, if that's something. I mean, even encouraging people, I don't know if people would be open to it, but encouraging them to meditate in their lunch break, or going for a walk around a lake or in their lunch break, and kind of sending people out to do that, and saying, you're going to be much better for the business, for yourself, for our customers when you come back fulfilled, kind of say, I don't want to see you for an hour. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> and, and really kind of make it a point of the way that you run your business, that you value that time away, that you value that ability to step back um, and encourage people to, to value it as well. And never, like, obviously you don't because you're asking the question. Don't make them feel bad about it. You know, you show them that you love it and that you live that way. Um, so I now have a couple of part-time employees uh, and it took Steph, the woman who I work with, probably three months to stop apologising for not answering your emails over the weekend. I'm like, I'm literally never going <laughs> to expect you to answer your emails over the weekend. And it's, again, unlearning that, that lesson, I think, that we've all learnt that we need to operate 24-7, even if it's not required. I think, again, just talking about why it's important to you, why it's important to the business, but also to you as a person. Uh, and I think, I think it's wonderful that there are business owners out there who want to encourage more balance and that they're not the horror stories that we hear where people are expecting responses to emails or text messages at 11 p.m. And I think that that will gradually become more normal for the people who work with you and they'll understand that you mean it <laughs> when you say, get out. Um, so I wanted to piggyback a little bit on yours for a second. I, I am also a small business owner, summertime only. We do run a sea kayak business up in northern Wisconsin, and I have to encourage my employees to take their lunch break for right. sure. Um, I'm like, it's paid, you know, take it and get away from the building because it's really easy to get sucked up by uh, the customers that come in. Right. So that's one little thing. And then I just wanted to thank you so much for... Um, well, I've been reading your blog for a while, listening to your podcast for a long time, and I did your online retreat in the fall. Oh, yeah, thank you. And which was wonderful, and I quit my I used to be a teacher for 15 years and I resigned this spring to um and you were a huge kick in the pants for courage to do that. And so I run uh, my partner's been running this kayaking business for a while and now it's a family gig, so I love it and uh so thanks and Oh, I have one question yeah. for you. <laughs> what is your current theory on how Rick demise, Rick Grimes, will meet his demise <laughs> in the upcoming season? Oh, I have no idea. I am embarrassed to say that I haven't watched the last season because we've been traveling. Oh, no. Yeah, I know. So I'm going to talk to you afterwards. And you need to fill me in. <laughs> it's a walking, walking dead question. Um, I had a feeling this was zombie related. So. Right, yeah. Okay. Surprisingly, I know, because I'm not into that sort of stuff at all. <laughs> uh, but thank you and congratulations. Thanks. Because it's, like, it's not easy looking at the way we're living and the way we want to live and making the leap between the two. Because like, while we see what we want, it's terrifying and expectations are heavy, you know, and we feel them and we have conversations with people who aren't aligned with where we want to go um, and it, it, it takes courage. So well done. Congratulations.
Yeah, it is. It's a huge deal. It's awesome. Well done. And I need to talk to you about The Walking Dead. <laughs> Hi. Um, I was just going to kind of piggyback on the earlier question about um, getting your spouse on board. Right. And um, my husband and I are both, like, we're, we're both into wanting to simplify and live a slower life. But I think we both kind of have slightly different ideas of how that should look. And we were having a conversation last night just about like the future when our kids are way older or grown. And I was talking about wanting to travel more. And mm -hmm. he is very rooted in our com community, kind of doing a lot of volunteer work and political work. And he really, you know, kind of isn't as interested in that. So right. I'm just kind of wondering if maybe you could talk about this sort of two different ideas of slow, of kind of like rooted in your community versus travel. How do you balance that? And yeah. how do you kind of come to that, how it looks for you as a family? Um, really great question and important, I think, to have that pegged early on, to have those conversations before it becomes like a great big tension of you wanting to go one way and he wants to go another. Um, I think maybe it might help for you both to sit down, possibly, and you may have already done it, but to write your why or your own eulogy if you're up for that. I'd say, I can understand that's a full-on thing to do, but uh, sit down and write maybe a list of your top 10 personal values or what you want your life to stand for. Or, you know, however, <laughs> however it makes you feel comfortable to answer that question, it's essentially the same one. And see what commonalities come up and see what differences come up. Because I mean, I think that life would be horribly boring if we all married people who are exactly the same as us and, you know, all of our friends were exactly the same. So there's a reason that opposites attract in, in those instances. And I don't think it means that you're not going to be able to do the things that you both want to do. Uh, and I think just keep talking as well, because maybe the reason that he craves community and the reason that he finds that his kind of zone of genius and his place of service is not too dissimilar from the reasons that you want other things. And if you can find um, commonality in your why, doesn't necessarily matter that the how is so different, I think. And they can also play really nicely together, even if they are different. Uh, and I think that much like the whole idea of work-life balance, which I think is on a daily, is really detrimental idea. I think that trying to achieve work-life balance, you know, every single day is going to send us all crazy, but I think that we can create a life of balance if you're looking at balance from the standpoint of six months or a year and being able to balance someone who wants to be deep in their community and also someone who wants to travel. Both of those can exist in a life if you're looking at balance as a long-term thing. Um, but I think just keep having the conversations. Maybe sit down and write your eulogy or write your why or write your priorities or your values um, and see, because I think that may actually open doors to conversations and parts of conversations that if you're stuck in, in the optics of it, like what it looks like, then you're not kind of going deep into the why we feel like that or, you know, how we can make it work for, for both parties. Um, so, yeah, go deep. Get a little deeper than, than even what you think it looks like and, um, and see where that takes you. But I, the thing that I have discovered over the past few years is that these changes, particularly if you're talking about a family or a relationship or big changes in the way that you're living, um, they take a long time. I mean, people might look at, at the decisions that we've made, Ben, my husband and I, over the past couple of years and thought, just that came out of nowhere. But the reality is that we've been talking about it for maybe three or four or five years previous. And it has gone from me saying, hey, maybe you could be self-employed one day and you could become a consultant and you could have more flexibility in your hours and him saying, that, that's like a cute idea, but that would never happen, to very gradually, every three or six months, having more of a conversation to one point. It's like, yeah, okay, well, that's got, you know, potential, but how would we make it happen? And sort of just that evolution of our decisions and our relationship and what it looks like, it takes time. So I think the fact that you're having these conversations now is, yeah, is the key. This maybe piggybacks on that a little bit, the idea of balance versus tilting, which I love. And just like being able to say that every now and then reminds me that I'm not crazy and yeah. maybe there's balance over the long term. But you've talked about this being a really busy time and tilting yes. into the busyness of that during this book tour and the traveling. But you get to do it with your family. Right. My husband and I really love to bring our son when we travel for work. Mm -hmm. um, but they're always very, very busy times. And I'm wondering if you've discovered what you've discovered and maybe what you've 
created in terms of sort of helping them with that experience mm. and get the most out of it as a family, but for them experiencing this world widening kind of thing that, that, that is a huge benefit, I think, in value and something that I certainly value and, and it seems like yeah. you guys do too. Just what are some of the ways that you can do that and when it's sometimes frantic? Right. Yeah. And it has been. I mean, we've been traveling since the end of January, but the book tour specifically has been three months of moving every few days, sometimes more than that. And it's not slow. Like, so, and I think the, the beauty of it is that I recognized that way before we left for the book tour and was ready for it. It was not slow. There was not a lot that was restful about the time, but didn't mean that we couldn't be mindful still. And what we really had to do is kind of bring our, really tighten up where our time went into those few core values that are really super important. Like, you know, the glass balls as opposed to the rubber balls. So the glass balls in our life are the kids and their well-being and them feeling safe. And like Ben's work and my work and making time for these things, this one at the top and these two here, and all the other balls that are surrounding it. Things like making the most of being in a beautiful place and going out and enjoying it and, 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 and all these great things that sometimes we can do, but not always, they're made of rubber. So we were really happy to drop those balls at any given time, as long as the three main ones didn't get dropped because they were the ones that matter. And it was really, it, it felt like a real tightening in to those core values and letting go of everything else. So I've dropped a lot of balls over the last few months. And I'm really proud to say that they've only been the rubber ones. So I think for me, it, it was having the, the time and the intention to, to think that through before we started and understanding that we can't do it all. I mean, and the temptation is you're in a great place. You're in Austin and there's live music down at the park and well, let's all go. Like, but everyone's tired. And, you know, what we really need to do is watch a movie. <laughs> yeah, we're in Austin. Yeah, it's the first time we've been here. No, I don't know when we're going to get back. But at what point does that become a disservice to these cores in our, in our life by trying to do all these other things that we're only doing because we think we should? So I think it's figuring out, again, what expectations I have had of what this experience will look like and letting go of the expectations and actually just living in the moment. Um, I've realized that having expectations about anything, good or bad, is, it's, like, it, it causes us to suffer because we will either go into these experiences with very high expectations and they will invariably not be met and we will feel like it's a failure or we'll go into these uh, experiences with low expectations and often when we have low expectations, that's what we see. You know, if we go to a place and we think we're not going to like it, then we probably won't because we think we're not going to like it. So I think that by letting go of expectations, um, we've also been able to really enjoy things a lot more because we go in completely open. Um, yeah, and I think for me it was understanding that this whole trip is a work trip and acknowledging that that meant we're not going to be able to do all the touristy fun things that everyone so kindly at events is like, you should do this and you should do that and you should do this. And it took us about three days to realise that that was wonderful, but there were just things that we had to pick and choose. We certainly weren't going to be able to do them all. Yeah, but I do think that, um, as you said, widening our, our kids' world in this way is such a privilege and I'm so grateful that we've been able to do it. And um, while Ben and I have conversations about the impact it's going to have on them, I try not to talk to them about it because I don't want them to feel pressured. That, Mum and Dad are saying this is a really important thing and I just want to go to the park. <laughs> yeah, so that's also been important to understand, I think, from early on, that they will absorb that and make it feel like a heavy thing rather than a fun thing, yeah. How much longer are, will you be traveling and what happens next? <laughs> oh, good question. Um, so I can answer the first part of the question. Um, this is the last US tour event and we're going to then spend three weeks on holidays with the kids, completely offline, genuine holiday. We're taking them to Disney World. <laughs> it is not for three weeks, but... <laughs> um, yeah, that is not slow, but it will be fun, right? So we're tilting well and truly into time with them. And then I've got a bit more of the book tour in Canada, so maybe for three weeks, um, and that ends at the end of October. And then I think we're going to spend three months back in Canada soaking up the cold vibes. And after that, we don't know. We, we genuinely, we really don't know. That will take us up to 12 months of traveling. And because we sold our house before we left, we didn't have to, but we, we chose to. It was this grand experiment in what would happen if we just let it all go. Uh, so I guess the fun then will be thinking about where we might want to settle. 
and I'm not being vague on purpose when I say I, we have no idea at this point. Yeah, that's one of those things that we're just waiting, waiting until we've got the headspace because I feel like at the moment trying to force a decision like that when there's too much resistance, too much else happening, is, it's not necessary, first of all, um, and it's probably not wise because I don't think we'd make a, a decision or a good decision now if we forced ourselves to. So wait till there's a little more space to have those conversations and, yeah, watch this space. <laughs> Well, we have space for more conversations with Brooke that aren't part of the podcast. Um, I think, Brooke, unless you have anything else, we can maybe wrap up Absolutely, this part. Yeah. But I do have one more thing. If I could have uh, a final question. As this is the last stop in your U.S. Mm -hmm. tour, and you've been to a lot of places already, and you're about to hit the pause button for three weeks, can you think about some gifts that you've received? Not necessarily physical, hey, here's a card, thank you, but... Just listening to people here who have, who have said, you know, you have done so many things for me, thank you. What are the things, the gifts that you've received from some of the people who you've been interacting with either in the past three months or even today where you think, wow, this is just so cool. I'm mm. really grateful for being able to have this experience in, a, in my slow way. Um, it's actually just meeting people who have listened to the podcast or have been reading my blog or come across me on Instagram, whatever it is that I get really emotional. <laughs> I, for many years, thought that what I did um, didn't matter and that it had no impact on people. So to be able to meet people who have um, shared the way that some, all I do is tell the truth. Like that's, that's why I wrote the book. I just wanted to tell the truth of my story. And I feel like I did that at least fairly successfully in some parts and when people come to me and tell me that there's this thing this thing that you wrote you just told my story you, like that was me on the page that helped me um that blows my mind and when people tell me that the podcast has had an impact on them um yeah it really fills me up in a way that i can't particularly <laughs> explain particularly well obviously but um <laughs> It's a connection that is, um, like, it's a gift, I think, to know that we, we, have, we have so much in common. And I think talking about our experiences as human beings is important because it's not all hashtag slow living on Instagram. Like, it's not all pretty and aesthetically pleasing or neat. Like, it's messy, but it's honest. And I think just having people being brave enough to come up and tell me their personal story or their struggle or ask me a question that is like deeply difficult for them to even put into words has made me realize how many brave people there are <laughs> um, and how much I love people like, in general. I really do. It's just filled me up in a way that I did not expect. Yeah. So thank you, Paul. Thank you, bro. Thanks, Joel. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.